You're listening to Recognise Red, the podcast, where we talk about the cultural impact of Me Too and the work that we still have yet to do. I'm Bea Hartshorn, and I'll be talking to campaigners, academics and creatives about the projects that they're working on to fight for gender equality. In this episode, I talk to Zelda Perkins, theatre producer and former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. We talk about the breaking of her NDA to speak out against him and the impact that Me Too has had on conversations internationally. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So Zelda, thank you for joining me. Not at all. So Me Too has opened up the conversation on sexual harassment, gender inequality and power. How do you feel about the last few years and the change it has had? Well, that's an interesting question because it's so layered and we definitely haven't got time Mm. to go into it fully. But I would say that my kind of short answer to that is that, you know, first of all, Me Too was not a movement that was started by what happened with Harvey Weinstein. And I'm sure you're very aware of that, but I'm going to reiterate it because I think most people, certainly in the UK, believe that Me Too, hashtag Me Too, was something that grew up around Weinstein. It actually was a movement started by an African-American woman called Tarana Burke um, about 10 years ago. And I find it very indicative of our issues that it only really got taken up in this sort of massive groundswell once a white movie mogul Mm. glittery exciting person was involved and uh, hence the salacious stories became of interest to the general public but actually what Tarana Burke started is incredibly important Mm. and is not just a gender-based movement and that's something I feel very strongly about too I think hashtag me too just being a a women's thing is actually um, rather derivative and not very helpful and has actually set up weirdly in in this last period of time you know an arena of combat between men and women which it's not meant to be feminism is about equality and it's not about pointing fingers and blaming and you know there are various facts around gender um which are there and they're they're truth you know they're facts statistically women are in a more vulnerable position in terms of um male violence and there is a gender gap in the workplace and there is a gender pay gap but all of these things are slowly changing i think hashtag me too has helped bring that conversation to the front but i think there i think there's a positive and a negative like like most things um i think the really positive thing that's happened is that it has become so global so you know you talk about the uae or countries where women genuinely are subjugated genuinely subjugated and the fact that me too has had some influence and impact in those countries and cultures that makes my heart sing. What doesn't make my heart sing is a bunch of teenagers going, yeah, hashtag me too, um, and using it as a weapon um, with boys. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's no bad thing for, for young men to have to think about taking responsibility for their behavior more, but uh, it shouldn't just be used as a sort of throwaway weapon, I don't mm. think. Um, and yeah. as a, as, as, as a, as a, as, as a hashtag to create division. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the same with all, with all movements. And that doesn't mean that I'm not 
pro it and positive about it. Um, I have not particularly, which you may have or not seen, depending on how much of sort of the stuff that you've looked at, but I try very much to personally steer away from gender mm. because I believe what's more important is our understanding as a culture of the abuse of power mm. and the abuse of power by women is just as important as the abuse of power by men and mm. um, you know I think there are some pretty good examples of female-led companies that are also in trouble right now mm-hmm. um, but again that is not, all I'm doing is, you know, I prefer to be a voice for sort of hashtag abuse of power rather than, than, yeah. than gender division. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel very passionately about, about the way men behave and the way women behave. Personally, I don't find blame and accusation and aggression around it helpful Mm. but everyone has to deal with their own situations you know within the environment they're in I personally find derision helps is the most derision and humor are the most helpful and bystanders speaking up are the most helpful um when it comes to sort of cultural ingrained behavior and I also think those things are much easier to change by using soft power Mm rather than trying to bring aggression and accusation into into the the mix. Yeah, no, I can completely understand what you're talking about in regards to gender, because it is so complex, you know, especially with like an internet movement such as Me Too, it's so easy for things to become polarizing and to actually become about something else or, you know, about who said what rather than getting to the bottom of the issue. So I wanted to ask you, in the late 90s, when you were working as an assistant for Harvey Weinstein, did people talk about his behaviour back then or what, was it normalised or ignored? Yeah, that, that, that question, it kind, of, it kind of made me laugh because it's already it made me feel like 100 years old. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't, mean, I don't mean like that, but it's interesting that, that it already seems, which is a fantastic thing, this seems like so long ago, because even asking that question, and I'm afraid I would beg to say that there are many industries and environments today mm. where you would find that that sort of behavior is still normalized. Mm. I think this is one of the great things that Me Too has done is, is that, that that is gonna make it harder and harder for people to, to pretend that it's normal. But in 1998, of course, we didn't talk about Harvey's behavior. Of course, it was just it was just normal, but not Harvey's behavior. That is how men were allowed to behave. Harvey's behavior was extreme. And I'm not saying I mean, again, we're looking at this question from hindsight where we now know that he was a serial assaulter and rapist. Mm. None of us knew that. Mm. We knew he was a pain in the arse we knew that he pushed the boundaries that he behaved we didn't even know that have the vocabulary but that he behaved inappropriately that he you know constantly um pushed the professional boundaries professional personal boundaries but then I'm afraid as a woman in the 90s that was par for the course Mm. this was not just about Harvey Weinstein 
I mean, even if I talked to my grandmother, she'd say, oh yeah, well, there were some men, they had an acronym, which was, um, I can't remember what it was, but it was something like not safe in the back of a cab, which was an acronym for men who, you know, who weren't safe in the back of the cab. Mm. And, you know, men have historically felt that it was okay to push those boundaries. As we know, in 2017, we had the President's Club. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not actually historical, but I think now people are talking about it and actually going, oh God, is, is, and men too are going, oh, is that, was that behavior appropriate or inappropriate? They're actually having to question it, which I think is a good thing because I think it wasn't questioned before. Specifically within Miramax, the thing that we were afraid of with Harvey, more than anything in the world was his temper. And I think that's the thing that people forget when we talk about Weinstein now. You know, he was an abuser and he was an abuser of men too. And it was his temper and his anger that we were afraid of. And in a way, I would prefer to have to deal with him sexually harassing me than being angry with me. Because mm -hmm. him being angry with me was terrifying because he had no boundaries. And I think, again, what we forget is the visceral nature of a very powerful, angry person. And we're seeing it now with, you know, when you look at historically stuff um, about Philip Green and the way Philip Green behaves, and you can see it even in his select committee performance. You know, these men who are in positions of power answer to no one. And they have temper tantrums and they cross the boundaries of physical and mental abuse all the time. And actually Harvey's sexual harassment, which we didn't call it then, was part of his toolbox. And actually the awful truth is, I, would, I can tell you that as a woman, you kind of would prefer to deal with him making salacious comments mm -hmm. than him losing his rag and screaming at you because that you became in mortal fear of your life which sounds unreasonable but you know when when somebody really loses their temper it's very frightening and on, on a human visceral level that's what you're really scared of so within the office within the london office i can only really talk about the london office but within the london office you know the fear that was around harvey was mostly to do with his temper Mm. I was given a warning about his proclivity to maybe have wandering hands, which, you know, I've talked mm. about, you know, publicly, you know, about keeping a puffer jacket on and not not sitting next to him on a sofa and, and not getting involved in sort of massage conversations. Mm. But um, it, it wasn't that we all sat around going, oh, my God, he's such a nightmare because he tries to get his hands down your skirt because mm. he didn't. Mm. It was all here. Mm. It was mental. It was mental coercion, and actually, the stick that he waved that frightened us all was temper. Mm. And so we would prefer to play a nasty game of of sexual chess, and I mean conversational, mm. rather than get into a situation of combat. And I think that's something that also we don't talk about as women, yeah. that, you know, there was an incredible video, and I don't know if you saw Sky News uh, featured it, of a woman who went to Harvey's office in New York with a business proposal, and she recorded the meeting on her laptop. No, I didn't see that. It's, uh, I can't remember her name. And she was incredibly brave to release this to the news because she's flirting with him. But actually what you see is you absolutely see Harvey's MO. Mm. 
because you see him flattering her professional capabilities and then he suddenly massive sexual in innuendos in between and every time she tenses he goes straight back to professional flattery and you can see her getting scared and mm. her way of protecting herself is parrying with light flirting back mm. because she doesn't want to get his she doesn't want to make him angry and this is something that goes on on a daily basis with men and women mm. and, and I think that's something that we have to talk about because you know she was shouted at publicly because everyone's like well look she's flirting with him totally and it's like yeah but why is she flirting with him yeah and culturally why is why is she behaving like that that's actually her trying to protect herself you know and she ended up meeting him that evening for a drink at, in a hotel lobby and he took her upstairs and raped her mm. and you know this is what makes it so complicated is that chess game that does get played between men and women in the professional environment that needs to stop because it's not necessary and it has become part of our business vernacular it's mm. less than it was but it's become part of the business vernacular and it shouldn't be it's not necessary mm. and you know what every single human being knows the intention behind every action and every comment that they make and that's what we all have to start taking responsibility for and not going oh well it was just a joke was it really a joke was it a joke because you were pushing to see the boundaries was it a was it a joke because you wanted to see if you could bring the conversation into a slightly sexual arena mm. that's not okay so you don't make the joke it's not necessary you know what that intention is you know so it, it's very complex and women also have a responsibility and I think now have more of a, an arena, I hope, to feel confident to not be aggressive, not, not you know, cause a scene. That's not necessary. Mm. But just to go, you know what? This conversation ain't going any further. That's the way you want to take it. It's fine. Yeah. You know, if you want to flirt with me, ask me out on a date. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's just about what, what we've, we've kind of got into a habit. And the thing is, is we don't have to be afraid of saying, I don't want to have this conversation. This conversation isn't, isn't appropriate. Doesn't mean I'm being aggressive. Doesn't mean I'm going to shop you to the police. And I think it's about particularly teaching young women and young men, you know, where, where, their, where their own personal responsibility lies. And the boundaries have changed, you know. The boundaries have changed and they need to keep changing. So I, I did work experience in 2018 at this obviously big media company. And yeah, and literally I think I clocked it into, within 10 minutes of me sitting down, these men, like obviously like middle-aged men were joking about kissing me and giving me like the kiss of life, it really inappropriate right. like sexual comments. And I was like, I've been here for 10 minutes. You've got to be kidding me. And it escalated over the week. I think I've made one inroad into saying something in the last year after I think um, after I looked into it and I later spoke to Diva about it. If you're doing work experience, you don't have any rights whatsoever. So I had no ground to stand on whatsoever, but it just made me feel so uncomfortable. 
So it was interesting that you say, you know, back in the 90s, it was considered normal, didn't even really label it sexual harassment. And then still, I think, while we're having these conversations about Me Too, and really has opened up these conversations about sexual harassment and boundaries in the workplace. But I think that there's still so much more, so much more to be done, because I think that definitely amongst like my peers, it's not something we necessarily feel confident in in asserting boundaries and what's okay because there's always going to be people who have more power than you i think that's the great thing that me too has done is i think i hope that it's beginning to give people more confidence to speak and certainly to know that there is now a process Mm. you know there is you know that there is a process that you can follow particularly at work and you know i think that i kept being told by people oh well you know what this younger generation they just look at us, you know, like friends of mine's kids and, you know, their teenage girls and stuff, look at them and like, what do you mean you put up with this? And what do you mean you put up with that? And that's insane. And, and I was like, God, that's so great that that, that generation are not going to have this problem. But then the interesting thing is, is when I've sat next to, this has happened to me on two occasions, I've sat next to friends, kids, young women in their early 20s who have just started in, in work or are doing work experience. And... You know, one of these girls who's, yeah, in her early 20s, she started working at a big financial firm, junior position, but she's super bright. She comes from a very liberal, well-educated family. And she sat there and told me that she was really uncomfortable at work and really struggling because her immediate boss kept making inappropriate comments about her body and the clothes that she wore and whether she was wearing makeup or not and I was like well what are you doing and she was like well I I don't know what to do and I'm like okay so actually what's interesting is is I keep thinking it's all okay because you know teenage young teenage women seem very robust and Mm. can't believe that we put up with that and then I realized that's because they haven't actually entered the workplace yet yeah they haven't actually met that dynamic And it's not actually, oh, it's all okay because the younger generation are confident enough to do this. Mm. And I had another example of this actually last week with the daughters of friends of mine who, you know, one of their dad's friends, their parents are split up and one of the dad's friends in his 40s making inappropriate comments to them and then sending them inappropriate texts. Not, Not like bad, but just stuff like you're hot, you know, God, I wish you were older. And it's like, yeah, really? And these girls actually are children of a Weinstein survivor. So they have lived through this and yet they still, when it actually came to it, didn't have the confidence to know how to deal with it. And I find that really interesting because I think, again, we're all saying, oh, me too, it's all so much better. And yes, we're talking about it. But you know what? That arena is still very, very, very frightening for young men and women. And there isn't yet a blueprint or enough information to give them confidence to feel that they can challenge that sort of behavior. And my advice to both of these kids or, you know, young women, the, the, the one in that in her twenties at this financial firm, you know, very accomplished first, you know, from a very good university, you would imagine would not have this problem. And I said, look, you don't have to start a war. You don't have to go to the police. You don't have to report him to HR and, you know, feel like this is a drama. So the first thing you do is you call him out in public. You make, you make him look, you embarrass him. 
And you can do that really gently. And I promise you, that is about the most effective weapon you have. And every single person, if they say, really? You know, are you really gonna, are you really gonna talk to me like that at work? Like, have you not been watching the news? Or, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can go any way. And if, and this applies to everybody else in, in the room too. If, if it's happened, in a public space because it appears that people still have a major issue with being silent bystanders is you just say uh mm, i don't really think that you should probably go on talking like that particularly in front of all of us uh, you know mm. and this is how it starts i mean the, the thing is, is if you have a boss like philip green or harvey weinstein yeah that's not going to work so then you follow the process and you go to hr and you know what it'll be okay Mm. It'll be scary, but it'll be okay in a way that it wouldn't have been okay 10 years ago. So when you actually initially wanted to speak out against Harvey Weinstein, there wasn't this route that you could go down. What, mm. what was the response that you were, you were met with when you wanted to speak out initially? Well, I had no idea that there was even something called HR. I had no idea that what he was doing was basically a, a criminal offence, you know, I, I mean, I had no, no concept at all. So I'd never said anything about the harassment that I had gone through, which I had gone through for three years. Mm. Um, I thought I just had to deal with it. And, and I don't know if it's a, a good reflection or a bad reflection on my upbringing, but I knew how to deal with dirty old men, you know, so I was very robust with him and that worked fine. Um, it was a pain in the ass constantly having to do the dance, but it was... It was not, he wasn't stupid. He wasn't going to jump on you if you knew how to play the game. Mm. But you shouldn't have to know how to play the game. I'm just saying I knew how to play the game, so I was safer. But when he assaulted my colleague, I, when we got back to, to the UK, I went to my superior, the only superior I had, who was and still is a very, very successful female movie producer. And I would like to point out that she is still trying to protect herself in this environment and does not think that she did anything wrong at the time. She was not shocked when I told her and that was the first really terrifying thing because I presumed I'd go to a grown-up and go, this is what's happened and they would go, oh my God, this is horrific, right, and tell me what we could do. And I didn't know whether it would be going to the police you know, what she should have done is we should have gone to HR and actually the police because it was a criminal offence. Um, and she just was like, right, okay, you need to get yourself a really good lawyer. And that was a bone chilling response to a 24 year old who knows very little. And so there was no offer of process. There was no offer of hand-holding or, or any, you know, she was very happy to help me find a lawyer, but she wasn't actually going to do anything outside of that. And yeah, I mean, I, I, at that point, I just presumed again, in my own naivety, that, that our only route would be police, lawyer, court. I didn't even, and it sounds pathetic, but I didn't know the difference between, you know, corporate law and, and the criminal law and media law. And, you know, I just kind of thought lawyers were lawyers and that they protected you know, the law and justice. And so you ended up signing an NDA. And for those who don't know, what is an NDA and how does it work? Well, at the time, it was not obviously suggested to me or called a, a non-disclosure agreement, which is what NDA stands for. 
it was, I was told that in this situation, our only option was to come to some sort of agreement, mm. some sort of settlement that would work out for both parties. And that was legally, basically it was the correct advice because the assault had happened in Italy on the Lido, which is a small island off Venice. We hadn't gone to the police. We're talking about, you know, three weeks later. Um, even if we'd gone to the British police, it would then have to go to the Italian police. We had no evidence. It would have been this girl and my word against Harvey Weinstein, Miramax, the Disney company. But our lawyers didn't even really just kind of say well this is a battle you could start they were just like this is the only way out of this and then they started to explain and then the, I said well that's fine if we can use this agreement to stop his behavior mm. and they were very confused by that which was also quite upsetting and then they also and I said but the one thing that mustn't happen is there's no money must change hands because Obviously, if money changes hands, that completely devalues what we're trying to do here. If we're trying to stop him. And they laughed. They were like, no, no, you have, to, you have to ask for money. If you don't ask for money, you won't even get them to the table. And, you know, you've got to have money. That's how these things work. So it was never, it was never brought to us as a non-disclosure agreement. And it wasn't really until we started the negotiations with Harvey's lawyers that all these clauses that were so, so onerous in terms of keeping us silent came to light. I mean, I didn't, we had no idea that's what we were walking into. We had absolutely no idea. I mean, we had an understanding that whatever this agreement was going to be, we would get for our silence, for us not prosecuting him, we would get something back. And that would be his behavior being stopped. Mm. So for us, it was a quid pro quo. You know, the money was aside. The money was, was like a, a technicality that the lawyers kind of introduced. And yeah, we asked for a lot of money. And we did that because when they told us, okay, so you can ask for a year's salary. And I was like, but that means nothing. Mm. So what's the point? There's no point in asking for money if, you know, the money has to be a punishment and it has to be indicative of the crime. Mm. You know, we're not asking just, we're not going to agree to take money because we want a year's salary. It's not about money that we want because I also thought as it was a legal document that it would be on public record. Mm. I mean, again, that shows my total naivety. And I thought, well, if everybody sees that he was prepared to enter into an agreement with us for $250,000, which is like the most money I could think of, mm. <laughs> um, you know, they'll know that this was something really bad. And also I was like, well, then the lawyers will understand. I kind of thought that it might stop the whole proceedings because my lawyer said to me, you can't ask for that. And I'm like, well, why not? And they're like, because he's never going to pay that money. And I'm like, but do you not understand what he did? And they're like, he's never going to pay that money. And I'm like, okay, well you ask and see what happens. And they were like, well, we advise you not to ask because if you do ask, you're going to end up with nothing. They'll call your bluff and there'll be no settlement and you'll be left swinging in the wind. And I was like, the guy just tried to rape somebody. They're not going to walk away. Because to me, it was about proving to the lawyers that we weren't lying. And I'm like, look, and you know what? They agreed straight away to the cash. And our lawyer, that was the first time our lawyers were like, oh, okay, maybe we'll take you a little bit more seriously now. Which I also found really offensive. I mean, the whole, the whole process was offensive from day one, from, from our position with our own legal team, before we even got to Harvey's legal team. Mm. 
absolutely bullied us and and terrorized us into an agreement that we couldn't even comprehend mm. yeah the agreement in itself it sounds just horrific and I, I really I struggled to wrap my head around the conditions in which it was negotiated because it was over several sessions one of which lasted 12 hours and ended at five o'clock in the morning you weren't allowed a physical copy you weren't allowed to speak to one another once you'd signed the agreement and you also weren't allowed to talk to a therapist about it and like you said, Weinstein didn't keep up his side of the agreement. He didn't go to therapy. He defrauded us, in yeah. fact, in that agreement. And this is a, a, an avenue that we looked at over the last couple of years when we came, when, we, when um, I went public. My colleague and I looked very hard with several different teams of lawyers in the US and in the UK as to whether we could, you know, show that Harvey Weinstein defrauded us in mm. that agreement because actually he did. We entered into that agreement only because he was promising to change his behaviour mm. and Miramax should have upheld that and we were defrauded. And understandably, as you said, when addressing the government in a select committee, you said that the NDA actually made you feel as though you were in the wrong for exposing his behaviour. We were meant to feel like criminals and I, we genuinely walked away from there thinking that because we'd signed that agreement, if we broke it, we'd go to jail. We'd have to pay the money back and go to jail because <laughs> we were so naive. But that was how it made us feel. Can we change the way in which NDAs are being used? What needs to happen, do you think? Well, I don't believe that NDAs can or should be allowed to be used around bad behaviour in the workplace. I just don't even understand how there's any logic in that. And I've argued at so many different, with so many different um, people and, and about this who say the victims, the victims... Yeah want the NDA just as much as the perpetrators do because they don't want to have to talk about this publicly. Mm. The point is, is it should never get to that point. It should never get to that point. And that's that's what we actually have to address. We keep we keep it's a bit like modern medicine. We look at the symptoms rather than the cause. Yeah, completely. An NDA is a symptom of behavior. We need to deal with the behavior and the way we all culturally deal with behavior in the workplace. It should not be shameful to say something bad happened to me at work. That's what's wrong. We're looking from the wrong end of the binoculars. And it's so simple. If you turn the binoculars around, you go, oh, okay, this guy did something really bad. He was really racist, or this woman was a bully, or this, you know, this person did this. Why is it the victim should feel the one in, in, in the poor position? And, and the thing with NDAs or settlement agreements as well mm. is that that actually is setting up victims or people who are going to make false accusations because that's another argument that keeps being thrown at me. It's like, well, you know, you can't have people just mouthing off saying bad things about their seniors because they're just going after their reputation. I'm like, if you don't have a, an agreement that offers you money to be quiet, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to talk about something false. And for people to come forward and talk about things that are deeply upsetting and wrong, you know, you know, you're not just going to do that hmm. the hell of it. Not but actually, there is an incentive if there is a settlement agreement at the end of it. Hmm. So what made you want to actually speak out and break the NDA almost 20 years on after you'd signed it? Well, I kept trying to break it. All my, okay. <laughs> I kept trying to break it, you know, 
probably, you know, much earlier than was possible. And, and I think I might have spoken in um, the talk that we had the other day about the fact that in 2015, I think, there was an Italian model, um, Amber Gutierrez, and there was a lot of press heat on this. She allegedly was assaulted by Harvey and she went to the NYPD and the NYPD sent her back to meet him with a wire, which she did. And he was sexually coercive again on tape. And she went back to them with the tape and the tape went to the district attorney in New York. And Ken Auletta, this journalist from the New Yorker, rang me and I told him everything then because I thought we had him. I was like, well, he's on tape now. And a day later... The whole thing was gone. She was settled for a million, and I'm not blaming her for it going. She settled for a million. The district attorney and the NYPD didn't, didn't take it any further. I don't know exactly their reasoning. Um, and actually, that was probably one of the worst moments of my life, because I was like, okay, I'm now in my 40s. I was in my 20s in the lawyers. I couldn't work the law out. But now I'm in my 40s, and this man is still doing the same thing. My agreement clearly hasn't worked. And the police and the district attorney of New York doesn't even care. That's how powerful power is. And it re that, that, was a, that really, really shook me. And I think by the time that the New York Times journalist, Jodie Cantor, got to me, called me in 2017, I think at that point, I was like, you know what? I don't care if I go to prison. I actually, I'm so disgusted with the way things are that I don't care. I'm happy to take one for the team because even if I go to prison, I can't believe that it'll be for that long. And listen, I don't have kids. I don't have, you know, a, a dependence. And, and, and that's actually a very important point to do with this whole thing, not just as a woman, you're vulnerable as a father too, but I think particularly for women, when you have family and you have dependents, it is a much harder decision to get up and talk about something like a sexual assault. You know, you don't want your children to look on the internet and see this. And this certainly was the problem with my colleague because she didn't come forward until last year. So she watched all of us for three years, you know, throwing ourselves under the bus. And she couldn't because she said, I don't want that to be what I'm remembered for. I don't want my kids to look me up on the internet and to see that I'm a assault, sexual assault victim. I don't, I don't want that to define me. And Professionally, I don't want that to define me. Now, in the end, it kind of turned out okay because Harvey got sent to jail and it was a big old story and me too and time's up and everything. But for a normal person in a corporate environment, they don't want a future employee to look them up and see that they're, you know, that they caused a problem in their last job because of assault. You know, that is something that's hard. And where for me, it was much easier because I didn't have, I didn't have any of those things to worry about. So it was a much easier decision for me to go, you know what, I'm going to, I'll take one for the team because I can't, I can't hold on to this anymore. And it's so wrong. You know, and I was hearing that there were all these rape allegations against Weinstein. And I was like, I have a moral duty to come forward. And if the law genuinely is going to put me in jail for breaking this agreement, then the law is an us and everybody will see it you know and I'm lucky because I'm in a position where I, I can actually do that yeah completely because they said to you initially way back in 98 they said oh well they'll drag your family through the court yeah. but yeah you know my mum died when I was three and a half and it is a story that would have made great press mm. I knew that 
I couldn't have my family dragged through that and my grandparents taken through the dramas of my mum's death and all of that. And, you know, my lawyers made it very clear to me that every, they said, do you have any skeletons in your closet? One of the first things they asked me, do you have any skeletons in your closet? Does anyone in your family have any skeletons in their closet? You know, do your family have any wealth? Because all of that will be found and dragged and raked and brought out in public and every penny of your family will be taken in a legal battle if you want to take Weinstein to court. God. That's my lawyers. Before we'd even engage with Harvey's lawyers. And I'm not saying that they did wrong. You know, it just is a fact. And that's one of the things, you know, about the law that I always say. And in fact, I think it was, I can't remember, maybe it was Helena Kennedy who said it to me. She said, you know, the law, it's a fact. The law was written by men for men. That's not an accusation. That's not a blame game. It's just a fact. Mm. And, you know, but we all need to hold hands to change it. Yeah. The reality is it comes down to being about these systems of power and how these systems of power continue to privilege the same men, the same kind of people in these elite circles. And and when you talk about... And the same women who are yeah. prepared to play the game, play exactly. that game. Yeah, you know, and benefit and, and tread on, on the women beneath them. That does ha- happen and we have to acknowledge that too. But it means that we stop playing that game. We change the rules of the game. And when you when you when you say about standing up in solidarity regarding all the other rape allegations against Weinstein, even though you'd face sexual harassment yourself from Weinstein, you were also acting as a bystander and a witness to the assault that your your colleague faced, which is incredibly powerful and I'm completely in awe of, of your tenacity in, in doing that. What was your reaction when you spoke out in, in 2017? Well, you know what the sad thing is, is that I thought if I break my NDA now and I don't get sent to jail and, and society backs, you know, the newspapers back or whoever backs me, mm. then I presume then there'd be a waterfall of NDAs. I thought people would all come forward and break their NDAs. And this again just shows how powerful and how intimidating these agreements are because nobody did. Mm. People were still too scared. My own colleague wouldn't break the same agreement. It took her three yeah. years. That's how scared and intimidating and horrible and, you know, and ethically wrong these agreements are. Mm. And then through the process I went through with the government doing their public consultation Mm. and the select committee inquiries, I met many men and women who signed NDAs and not signed them 20 years ago when they were 22, who signed them in their 40s at the height of their careers last year, five years ago. And their lives have been ruined and these agreements still hang over them and affect their lives in a massively detrimental way, professionally and personally. Mm. So this isn't something, this isn't something that belongs to history. It's something that's still going on. And something that shocked me earlier this year was that the BBC reported approximately 300 NDAs have been used by UK universities since 2016, spending 1.3 million to silence students about bullying, sexual harassment and poor teaching. Universities are one of the worst arenas. They really are, you know, and I've seen it a lot. Yeah, I've definitely heard of NDAs being used at university and then the university saying one thing and then like students saying another. What would you say to students or young people who are perhaps starting their careers who are being pressurized into signing an NDA to essentially cover up discrimination or harassment? 
never ever 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 sign an NDA there really is no occasion that I can think of where it will benefit you in the long run mm. it might appear to be the only solution and the best solution and the quickest solution and I genuinely don't think that all lawyers and and corporate bodies or university bodies are trying to do something evil mm. you know I think there is a huge belief that the NDA is a good solution in in some situations but it just isn't. It's a symptom and it's masking a problem. And actually, if people continue to sign NDAs, then nothing's going to change. If everybody stops, things will change super fast. I think what, you're, what you've been talking about in terms of, obviously, everyone kind of stepping up and questioning the law, questioning these power structures, the way that we engage with these systems of power needs to change. But obviously, it's understandable when we see people like Trump empowered, you know, and getting away with it, that's going to be really disheartening. And also closer to home, uh, the recent appointment of the new equality commissioner, Jessica Butcher, who attacked modern feminism and Me Too, and is quoted as having said that men have had their careers and reputations ruined overnight. Some possibly justly, but without any due process, no innocence until proven guilty. Firstly, what do you think of this, this narrative of people speaking yeah, she, out, ruining men's careers and ruining their reputation? She's come up with some great corkers and, you know, and listen, I recognise what she's saying. I've, I, I've heard it, certainly in the environment that I've grown up in, you know, which which doesn't agree with victim culture. I don't agree with victim culture either, but Me Too is not victim culture. Calling out discrimination is not victim culture. Um, and, and this is what I'm saying a little bit about the whole hashtag Me Too thing. It's very easy, you know, we have a responsibility as the complainants <laughs> to, to be grown up as well. Mm. Obviously her appointment is, is uh, it's so disappointing and it's politicizing something that you know, needs protection and, you know, the Equality and Human Rights Commission usually actually gave some of the best guidance on NDAs, published some of the best guidance last year on NDAs out of everybody. Um, and we'll see. But listen, this is a phase. She's not going to be there forever. And I believe that the groundswell of opinion and enlightenment that is emerging is stronger than than one one woman who is is part of the the establishment game you know like i say she is a woman and i'm not i'm not saying that that she that she's evil and wrong she's just blind and she's playing a game because she also wants to succeed mm -hmm. and she's had to play the game and she's playing with the men that are appointing her yeah. you know she's playing the old school game but there are plenty of young, smart women who in politics and in that environment who are coming forward and speaking and pushing the right message. And I think actually that she'll just end up, nobody will remember this woman. She's a small hurdle in a, in a much bigger, stronger movement. So, yeah, I mean, she's not Trump. Boris Johnson isn't Trump, thank God. Yes, of course, it's disheartening. But I also think that in a way, having people like Trump and Johnson in power have made us wake up. We were all very yeah. complacent. We got too comfortable. And this is what happens when you're complacent and you don't politically engage, mm. you know, and, and life is a constant balance. And we've swung 
you know, that big swing to the right has woken up a lot of people who had got a little bit too comfortable. And just taking it back to to the film and theatre industry, because now you're working as a theatre producer, how does it feel to see the film and theatre industry responding to Me Too and, you know, creating content that addresses sexual harassment, having these conversations about pay gaps and mistreatment? I think it's fantastic. You know, the creative industry has really grasped the nettle probably more than any other industry Mm. Um, and I don't think it's just because of Harvey and I don't think it's because it's a business where it happens more than any other business Mm. I think it's a business where it's very clear you know I think you are much more vulnerable as a performance artist because you go to drama school and you spend three years learning how to step over all your boundaries and how to go to uncomfortable places and how to how to step out of cultural acceptable norms i mean you have to go up on stage and and do stuff that not very many people would want to do Mm -hmm. so you know it is right and proper actually that there is more protection for people who are putting themselves in a more vulnerable position Mm. but you know if we were to look at the financial the educational the medical, you know, all of these industries have huge power structures that really, really need to take responsibility. And it's going to be, you know, it's, a, it's, it's going to be a long old battle. Stuff isn't ever going to change overnight. But it do, I do feel ultimately quite optimistic because we're having the right conversations. And how can we get involved in campaigning to change the way that NDAs are used to cover up harassment and discrimination if we can? Don't ever sign an NDA (laughs) is a start. (laughs) I think you need to look, it's really important that everybody looks really closely at any sort of Mm -hmm. contract that they sign. And I'm not saying this because I'm a sort of conspiracy theorist, but non-disclosure clauses and confidentiality clauses as a standard thing have crept into a lot of very innocent contracts. And again, not because anybody's being evil, it's just something that has begun to creep into our legal norms, a bit like us becoming a more litigious society. You really need to check very carefully. Uh, And I can give you a really funny example of this. I did an Intelligence Squared talk, and before I went out to do it, they asked me to sign a a waiver, which is standard, perfectly Mm -hmm. standard. Anyway, I looked through the waiver, and clause five was, you cannot discuss anything that happens or is said or you see or you hear or you say at this event and I was like I turned around to the organizers was like huh is this like a joke did you put that in as like a test to see if I read my read contracts they were like what are you talking about I'm like you have a confident you have a non-disclosure clause in your basic waiver for me to go out on stage that I'm not allowed to discuss anything that happens at this event tonight and they all went absolutely puce in the face even they didn't know, you know, and I said, well, obviously I'm not, I'm crossing that out. I'm not, not signing that part of it. I had to say when I went out on stage, I said, I'm not having a go at Intelligence Squared, but this is just a perfect example mm. of how insidious this has become. It's just crept in. And, you know, so I think it's very important to be aware of that sort of thing. That's mad. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of campaigning, I, Anything that you do that that gives you a contract that has any form of non-disclosure or confidentiality clause in, cross it out. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Recognise Red presents Hashtag Discuss. Thank you to Zelda for coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure to hear all your thoughts on the Me Too movement and to hear your story of breaking your NDA to speak out against Harvey Weinstein. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or subscribe or share. It all really helps. Thank you.